All right. So um, I was asked to prepare a message this week on missions. Uh, since we are commissioning a missionary uh, and and sending her out as a church, as it were. And, and so as I uh, was thinking about this, I thought of a couple different places, such as the Great Commission, which if you've been here any length of time, I'm sure you've heard preached, but it's always good as way of reminder to, to hear these things again. Um, but as I was spending time praying and, and studying the scripture and preparing this message, I was actually brought back to a section of scripture, and it's going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, so you want to turn there. Um, but this this section of scripture has really meant a lot to me over the years. Now, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed, all scripture uh, is is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking. So I'm not saying that this section of Scripture holds some deeper truths than the rest. All I'm saying is that this section of Scripture has been repeatedly at different points in my life been used by God to ignite my imagination for what it could mean to follow Him, for what it could mean to enter in the work of making disciples, to enter into the work of vocational ministry. It's been used several times over the years, and each time I'm brought back to this section of Scripture, whether on my own study or whether I'm preaching it. Because I preached uh, this actually at a couple areas all around the world. Um, but each time I see more in it. Uh, I see these incredibly beautiful truths of God in it. And so, so I want to share that with you today. This section of Scripture is all about being ambassadors for God. right? And, and so I think it's incredibly relevant for us as Christians is as we're talking about missions. Yes, it doesn't talk about going to the nations specifically here, but that's part of the work. And in a good and healthy church, our missions work is not sending someone out uh, to do the work of ministry for us so that they can share the gospel in our place. No, a healthy church is so full of the love of Jesus and it's flowing out in their relationships. They're making disciples here and out of the abundance of that, we send people to share that love to the far corners of the earth. All right? That's what it looks like. We don't always live up to that ideal, but that's the ideal painted in scripture. So I'm going to spend some time here today in 2 Corinthians. Uh, a couple of things though, um, since uh, we believe that the word of God reveals who he is and that it's not a, a list of unconnected lines or some magical words that we say, but that each part of scripture has a context and within that context we can understand it more fully. Um, that's why we preach through a whole book. That's why we're preaching through Ephesians section by section, but we're going to jump into the middle of the book, which we wouldn't normally do. Because of that, I want to spend a little extra time just talking about the context real quick before we dive in. And, and just so you know, 2 Corinthians is Paul's second letters to the church in Corinth here. Uh, the first one, he confronts sin. And so coming into the second one, you see that the, this person who's been confronted with their sin, that they are indeed repentant. And so Paul's urging them not to take this confronting of sin too far, that if they are truly repentant of their sin, their sorrow and grief over their own sin and the damage it's caused is enough, right, to, to give them grace. But the other thing he's confronting is that Paul is, is this, this poor 
vagabond, never really having a home painted in scripture. And not only that, he's he's portrayed as not being a very persuasive or charismatic speaker in person. You may not get that from his letters. He's a much more persuasive letter writer than he is in person. And so what's happening in the church of Corinth is they're having these what he calls super apostles coming in, these incredibly charismatic speakers who are coming in and they're kind of putting Paul down and they're saying, why do you listen to this guy? Look at him. He's poor. He's basically homeless. He's he's kind of a bad speaker. He's kind of a smuck. Why are you listening to him? Uh, and they're bringing in this false gospel. And Paul is saying, listen, yeah, I am all of these things, right? But I bring to you the true gospel. So all of these are going into this and might help us understand this text of Scripture a little better. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look specifically uh, starting at uh, chapter 5, verse, uh, and I actually put, you're going to have 11 on your bulletins, but scratch that out right, verse 10, and we're going to go through uh, chapter 6, verse 13. So if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word, I want to read it to you and pray and then dive into this text together. So it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, 
We commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardship, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as we have nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as to children, widen your hearts also. Father, thank you so much for your word today. I pray that you would make your appeal through me so that I and, and those here today might hear your word and that it might awaken in us uh, just an awareness of the love of Christ towards us in such a way that it just moves us so that we live our lives fully and completely devoted to you, that we're so overwhelmed by your love that it affects every area of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. Now, I'm just going to tell you up front what I hope to draw from this, because in this section of scripture, there's just so much here that I could spend weeks and weeks, if not months, diving into what this this text is saying and pulling out all the riches of Scripture here. But there are a couple main points I really want to draw your attention to. So you might notice kind of the main points for today, and that is that is this. Controlled by Christ's love, living only for Him, we use all means in persuading others to be reconciled to God. So that's what I want to draw your attention to. So if you look at me at the beginning of this section, what you'll notice is that it begins talking about God's judgment. So it says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what we do, what we did in the body, good and bad. Now, why is it talking about this? Because in the, It's because in the section right before this, Paul's talking about how he carries around him in him this eternal weight of glory, and yet it's in these this kind of jar of clay, this earthen weak vessel, right? And he's saying that all this suffering and all these things right now are earning up for him this weight of glory, and that he does everything for the sake of Christ. And therefore, he does this because he knows at the end, everyone must sit before God in judgment. And so the beginning of his work, and therefore the beginning of our work and discipleship, begins with the fear of God, because all must face judgment. Now, as Christians, we don't often talk about that aspect of God, but we do know that the wisdom of uh, begins with the fear of God, right? It doesn't end there, we know, through the New Testament, nor does it in this section of Scripture, but that's where it begins, One of the things we keep in our minds is that one day we will all be face-to-face before the eternal, holy, all-knowing judge, God. And we will have to give it an answer for every single thought, every single word, every single deed that we did, both good and bad. And so that produces in us the fear of God. But notice here, as we keep going, that's not ultimately what controls Paul. 
what controls them? Let's, let's look. See, um, if you look here in verse 14, it says this, this sentence, and this, this sentence honestly could be a sermon all its own. For the love of Christ controls us. I want you to think, let that sink in for a second. That all of this that Paul's about to dive into, all of the work that he does, all the things that he endures to deliver the message of the gospel to the Corinthians and all these other people, it's because he is so controlled by the love of Christ. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to the words because as it turns out, the wording and the grammar is very important to understanding the scripture. I know, I, I was really disappointed too when I found out grammar was important to understanding the Bible, but it, it is, it's important, right? And, and what did you hear when I said the love of Christ controls us? Because I think some of us, what we hear is that we are so in love with Jesus, that affects everything we do, right? And, and, and so this idea of this person who's super passionate about Jesus and they keep working up their affections, more and more in love with Jesus, and that's what fuels everything they do. But notice, it is not our love for Christ that controls them. No, it is the love of Christ. The actor in this sentence is Christ. The one who does the work in this sentence is Christ. The one who so overwhelms us and controls us is Christ in his love. For us, that's important and that's freeing because as it turns out, you cannot so work up your affections for Christ to make yourself do good. It is a work of Christ in us, a miraculous work. And what it is describing here is what is the love of Christ? Well, we know that it's most fully shown in that, that the Son of God stepped into humanity. He lived a fully human life in a fallen world. He suffered the indignities of being hated by humankind and even being murdered and then rose again, all for the sake of reconciling us with God. That is the love of Christ. So when we talk about the Christian mission of making disciples, of, of sharing the gospel, of being ambassadors for Christ, this is where it has to begin to be so overwhelmed by the love of Christ towards us that it affects every single thing we do. Another way of saying that is that the gospel of Jesus, we are made so aware of it that every thought and action and deed that we do is affected by it. This is how Christians live, and this is why we live. And that is a very different thing than working up our affections so that we might do something for God. No, we don't have anything to do for God. He has done it all in the person of his son. And therefore, our life is not about earning something or working ourselves up towards something. It's about being overwhelmed by the love of Christ towards us and that affecting everything. It describes that more fully if we keep reading. So the um, Controlled by Christ's love, living only for him. So look with me as we keep reading. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for, 
but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And now that, that uh, if you don't read carefully, that might sound a lot like the three musketeers, right? One for all, all for one, right? This mutuality and brotherhood and that. But what's different here is this is not mutuality at all. This is very lopsided towards Christ. One died for all. What is it saying here? It's saying that Jesus Christ, although sinless himself, took the punishment of sin on himself. And in that moment where he died and took that punishment, our punishment was there. We died in that moment to our old way of life. That's why in baptism we say we are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. This is what it is describing here, that Christ took the punishment for our sins completely on himself. He did the work here. And therefore, our old life died on the cross. And now we have a new life, a new life that we do not live for ourselves. In other words, what he's saying here is that Christianity is all about Jesus or it's not Christianity. right? Now, we, we have this thing in our culture called prosperity gospel. Where the idea is that we, we come to God and we come to Jesus and he gives us good stuff like like money and, and wealth and health and everything else. And most of us realize that's kind of ridiculous. Like, yes, yeah, Jesus is going to make me a millionaire. Sure, right? Like, we, we know that's not going to happen. That's not really what the Bible is describing. But we, we tend to take it in smaller doses, right? Like, we come to Jesus because he's going to fix up my life. He's going to make me a better husband or a better wife. He's going to make me a better father. He's going to make me have a better family life make me a better worker. And while all of those things are important and Jesus wants to do that in your life, the they are not the primary things, right? We come to Jesus to have control of all areas of our life, not just the parts we want him to show up in. In other words, it's not that Jesus is some contractor we hire to come fix up our houses how we want him to. Like, okay, if you paint this wall, if you would you know, uh, fix my AC, that would be great. But then all of a sudden he starts he starts tearing down the walls, right? Uh, um, and, and we're like, wait, I didn't hire you to do that. Well, that's not how it is in Christianity. When we enter into Christianity, Jesus has complete control. It is no longer our house. It is no longer our life. We live only for Jesus. In other words, to be a Christian means to live fully for Jesus. Otherwise, you're not living for him at all, right? And I don't say that as some sort of guilt trip here to, to kind of make you feel like, oh, I'm not living for him enough because once again, who is doing the work here? It is not us. We are not somehow through our own self-discipline and willpower working up where our lives are somehow living out perfectly for Christ. This is a miraculous work of God in us. In other words, Christ's love for us is accomplishing this. And so, compelled by Christ's love and living only for him, we use all means in persuading others. What we're going to see in this section of scriptures is that the Christian life is about being ambassadors for God, that all of our life point people to this message of reconciliation, and therefore we use every means available to us to do this. And so, I want to, it's not explicit, Explicitly stated, it's more 
the whole area around the section of Scripture implies it. So I want you to turn to chapter 6, and I want to show you what Paul himself went through in order to bring the gospel to the Corinthians. So we see here, starting in verse 3, he says this, We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. In other words, Paul is so concerned about bringing the gospel to bear on the lives of the Corinthians, he makes sure there's no obstacles in their way. What does that mean? So um, that meant for Paul that as servants of God, they commended themselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities. What do we know Paul went through? We know that he had the, he seemed to be always on a move. Very few times did he have a home. He was shipwrecked at times. He was beaten. He was left for dead. He was rejected and kicked out of synagogues. Eventually, it even cost him his own life, right? We see that as keeps going further. Beatings, imprisonments, riots. Think about that for a second. The, what Paul said was so offensive to these people that they lost their minds and rioted over him. Like what in the message of the gospel makes people so angry that they just lose their humanity for a moment and swarm a man and beat him and leave him for dead? They didn't even bother burying him. The only reason he survived is because he was left for dead. What brings up so much anger? And yet Paul was willing to go through that just to bring the gospel to them. And labors and sleepless nights he spent, whether on the move or working, traveling, fleeing from his death, or even sleepless nights, praying over these people. He was hungry at times. He also made sure that he was living a life that, that did credit to the gospel he, by purity and knowledge and patience and kindness, the Holy Spirit doing his work in him, by genuine love and truthful speech and the power of God weapons of righteousness in the left and the right. In other words, it's not just what he was willing to endure, but he made sure that he submitted himself to sanctification so that his life didn't do discredit to the gospel as well. And then it says, even when he brought this message, he did it through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We were treated as imposters and yet true. And yet, even sacrificing all these things for these people, even bringing them the message of the gospel, they still treated him as some sort of slanderer and imposter. The Corinthians, whom he was the one who brought the gospel to them, and he, he did it in such a way that he, he didn't even raise money off of them, although he said he could have. For the work that he was doing, he deserved to be paid, but for their sake, he refused to take money from anyone so he wouldn't be a burden, so it wouldn't keep them from the gospel. And yet, as soon as someone who's more charismatic and persuasive and seemed more influential by the world standards came along, they're like, why are we listening to this Paul guys? These, these guys seem so much better. And yet he was willing to endure all that for the sake of bringing them the gospel. And the next thing I want to say, I want to be very careful, but here's the truth. Christians through all times, through all ages, and even now have had to endure all of these things in order to live faithfully for Christ. But a lot of us even struggle to share the gospel with someone because it makes us uncomfortable. And when I say that, once again, I'm not saying that to shame you. I'm not saying that to, to kind of 
beat you over the head and say, share the gospel, right? Because you can't, by some sort of self-effort, work up to where you can endure this for the sake of the gospel. This is not a work that we can do on our own. It is only by Christ doing this work in us. Do you see that? Like the, the passion, the being compelled by the love of Christ is Christ working in us. That's the only way we can share the gospel. Yes, we can by some sort of self-discipline enter into discomfort occasionally. And, and that might even be a good thing to challenge ourselves sometimes, right? But the type of passion, the type of control by the love of Christ where you can endure beatings and slander and everything else, if, they might, if some might just hear the gospel, that is not a work that we can do. That is work that Christ does in us. And so, and so we, mo we move on to this next section, controlled by Christ's love, living only for him. We use all means in persuading others. I want you to pay careful attention to the words that Paul is using to describe this. In verse, in verse 11, he uses the word persuade. In the verse 20, he uses the word implore. In verse 20 and in the first verse of chapter 6, he uses the word appeal, right? In other words, the image that is being given in order to bring this message of the gospel to people is one where we are using persuasion, where we are appealing to them, where we are imploring them. It is not one where we are confronting, right? It's, that's not the word he uses in this sense. It's not, it's not going after people. It's not... Speaking the truth, leaving off the love part, is it? Now, don't get me wrong. Speaking the truth is loving, right? There were times where Jesus confronted people. He called the religious leaders of his day snakes and the children of Satan, right? And yet, at the same time, we know that Jesus fully lived perfectly the disciplines of kindness, goodness, and self-control. Somehow those don't contradict, right? But I would wager to bet most of the time, when we want to speak the truth to people, right, uh, without the gentleness aspect, when we want to really reveal the truth to them, it's not so much about persuading them. See, Jesus knew what was in the heart of men. He knew when he needed to speak the truth bluntly to people to get them to hear it. The religious leaders who thought they were righteous needed to hear the truth a little more bluntly than others. And yet, don't think that's the reason most of us speak the truth bluntly. If we're honest, why do we do it? We do it because it feels good, right? These people need to hear the truth is how we describe it, right? Whether they actually listen to us or not doesn't really concern us because it feels really good. And yet the description here is one where we persuade people, where we implore people, where we appeal to people. In other words, we're willing to forego our pride if we think that in doing so, we, the person is better able to hear the gospel. Can you do that? Can you go up to someone who has treated you as if you were an idiot and somehow morally uh, inferior for being a Christian, and instead of speaking the truth bluntly to them, if you think that they will better hear the gospel by speaking in gentleness and kindness, are you willing to forego the satisfaction 
to speak it kindly to them, to not count all of their anger towards you against them, but to absorb it because you know it's not directed at you, it's directed at Christ. You willing to endure that? I mean, this isn't beatings and riots, right? But are you willing? On the other hand, sometimes the reason that we don't use persuading and imploring and appealing is because we have this wrong view of who is doing the work here, right? We think that, man, I have to get them to see the truth or they won't repent of their sins. They won't see the gospel. If I don't make it clear to them, if I don't get it across to them, I want you to pay, once again, very careful attention to the wording as I read this section of Scripture to you. Who is doing the work as I read this? So it says this, starting in verse 18 here. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Who is doing the work in our witness? When we make disciples, when we share the gospel, who is making his appeal? It is God in us. You see, what, wherever we go, whoever we speak to, when we are doing the work of making disciples, when we are presenting the gospel to them, it is not us. It is God. I think uh, A.W. Tozer, one theologian, put it really well when he said this about God. Probably the hardest thought of all of our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. We constantly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. And then he goes on to say, too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancy frustration of the almighty God. As effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I feel that thousands of young persons enter Christian service for no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged, and you have the true drive behind much of Christian activity today. In other words, the truth is that God does not need us. And I want to ask you, is like this quote from A.W. Tozer, when I say that sentence, does something in you rise up against that thought, God does not need me? Because I know part of me it does. And, and it makes sense because when another human being says that to you, it, it is kind of wrong. Because God made us as human beings to need companionship with other human beings. So to say, I don't need you, 
is, is a lie, and it's to deny something human in you. But when God says it, it is freeing. I mean, think about what it would actually be like if God needed us, how incredibly burdening that is. And yet he doesn't need us. So then why does God choose to make us his ambassadors if he doesn't need us? Here's the freeing and amazing truth. It's because he actually wants you and chooses you. Isn't that amazing? In other words, the whole work that we are called to as ambassadors in Christ is God doing the work through us. The image is not one where we have this weak and, and frantic God who needs our help in order to bring the gospel to the world. No, it is one where we have been made his children and our heavenly father is bringing us along at the job. And even though it may seem to us like we're actually not really helping him, we're kind of more of a nuisance and a hindrance. The truth is that we're, even then we're missing the point. The point is that he is our father and we are his children and he wants us with him in his work. Not that he needs us, but that he wants us and he chooses us. So what does this mean for persuading others? Well, I think this is why this comes right after the section of Scripture where Paul is talking about carrying in earthen vessels, this, this priceless treasure. And he's talking about this eternal glory that is being built up for us as as Christians, that we were being made in this new person. Even though right now we live in this corrupted, fleshy body that is given over to sin and evil caused by the fall, that inside of it, it carries this incredible treasure. And that's true for this message of reconciliation that we've been entrusted with. For some reason, God chose me to be entrusted with the message of reconciliation. He chose you. And I'm so thankful that he doesn't need me and that it's him making his appeal. Because if I know myself and I know my own character, without Jesus, there's no way I could be a fitting vessel for this message of reconciliation. I'm so prone to all the sins that this message is pulling us out of. Even right now, even though the Holy Spirit is working in me and he's sanctifying me and he's building up the fruit of the Spirit in me, even still I am prone to sin. Less and less each day, thankfully, but, but if, if the message of reconciliation depended on me, things would not go well. And yet one of the amazing privileges as a Christian, and I say this often and I don't mean it in some sort of spiritual way, I'm genuinely surprised and amazed that for some reason, God has chosen the most incredible treasure, the message of reconciliation, and he's chosen me to be the ambassador for it, to be the, the deliverer of that message, and he's chosen you for that. This is the mo one of the most incredible privileges we have as Christians is to enter into the work of making disciples, of introducing people to Jesus and claiming and preaching to them the gospel. It, it is not a burden or a duty. It is a privilege and it is an honor. But the only way we can really view it that way is if, once again, returning to the beginning, we are so controlled by the love of Christ towards us. And so what is this message? I'm saving it for last. Perhaps I should have brought it first, but, but 
All of this depends on how amazing this message is. So I want to read through this last section of scripture again so you can see what is this amazing message that we get to be ambassadors for, that God is making his appeal to us, through us, for. So uh, look with me right here, starting at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What is the message? That you get a new life. Keep going. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I've been saying that word a lot, but what does reconciliation mean? It means when you have two people who used to be formally united together and yet something split them apart, it's when you bring them back together. You repair that relationship. And so for human beings, we were made to be with God. And yet we we rebelled against him. We hated him. We made him our enemy. And yet God reconciled us to him. And, and what does that mean further? It keeps saying that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. What is going on here? The amazing thing is when you are trying to reconcile two people for instance, who used to be friends, now they are split apart. You might have one person forgive the other, and that is good. You want to encourage them to forgive them. But until both parties decide to forgive and reunite, there's no reconciliation. You cannot have lopsided reconciliation, right? To be reunited, you need both parties. But the amazing thing in this reconciliation is that God does both sides of it. Human beings split from God and our hatred towards them. We rebelled and made ourselves his enemies. So what did God do? He sent his son to become a human being, to take on the punishment for our sins in our place and to do both sides of the reconciliation. That is the message of the gospel. And to sum it up even further, Paul keeps going keeps going. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So over and over and over, Paul is telling the gospel in slightly different wording. And this one, to me, might be the most amazing of them all. Think about that sentence for a second. The Son of God becomes a human being, and though he didn't sin, he became sin. What an incredible love could compel our God to become sin for us. And not only that, because he became sin, and because he died and took the punishment for our sins, we can now become the righteousness of God. Do you realize what a profound statement that is? That God was willing to send his own son to become sin for you so that you could become his righteousness. That is the God that we serve, and that is his message of reconciliation that we have the privilege to be ambassadors for. 
And so maybe you uh, are, are listening and you're not actually a Christian today. Maybe you haven't yet received the reconciliation to yourself. So what I want to close on is the same plea that Paul gives to the Corinthians. He says this at the beginning of chapter 1, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, God is making his appeal through Paul to the Corinthians in this letter, and God is making his appeal through these words of Scripture and through my preaching to you today that do not receive this grace of God, this message in vain, but instead, in the favorable time I listen to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In other words, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus, if you've not yet been reconciled to God, if you've not yet died to your old life and found a new one to live for Christ, do that today while Christ is, is proclaiming his message to you. And so this, this is what I want to wrap up with, right? One more reminder that as Christians, our work is to be so controlled by Christ's love for us and living only for him that we use all means in persuading others to be reconciled to God. And so with that, I want to close in prayer and invite the worship team back up to continue our worship. Father, I pray that the words of your scripture would uh, ignite the hearts and minds of the people here today, that we would be so overwhelmed with the love of Jesus for us that it would affect everything we are and do and say and think, that we become people who are compelled by the love of Christ. And therefore, we persuade, implore, and appeal to all around us to be reconciled to you. Thank you for the privilege of making your appeal through us, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.